Hello and welcome to History Now. In today's show we're going to be talking about a very important topic, uh, sexual violence during the Irish Revolutionary Period. And joining me today is Professor Linda Connolly, who's from Maynooth University. I just want to warn viewers that there will be themes that some people may find distressing. So Linda, thanks for coming into the show. Um, this topic that you're researching, it's, it's a very raw topic, even after all these years, and it has been tackled bits and pieces um, by other academics. What new has come to light that you have thought that it needs to be you know, explored more? First of all, there was always a presumption in relation to the Irish Revolution, broadly encompassing the period covering the War of Independence and then right into the Civil War and its aftermath, that what we, today we call sexual crime in particular wasn't really either a very important issue on the one hand and then secondly that it wasn't very prevalent and therefore it didn't really require detailed analysis. And really what we found since a vast array of new sources have become available only in very recent years such as the Bureau of Military History statements, witness statements, uh, the pension applications, etc., uh, that there is actually some evidence of what we call gender-based violence as a consequence of war or as an element of the conflict that occurred in Ireland in this period. So what we see is the emergence of stories of what happened to women, uh, a recovery of women's experience that was on the one hand lost but also perhaps denied in the period after the civil war and the establishment of the state in the context of the republic. Yeah and there's something that you've you've touched upon in one of your articles on it. Uh, after the revolutionary period when you have that bedding in of the Irish Free State there's something that um, people have called collective amnesia around that. Sure. Could you just probably talk about that because um, what, what exactly does that mean? It means a number of things. I mean, first of all, I would say it's, it's very common in the aftermath of revolutions uh, for two things to happen. And I, I, I try to say this nicely, but I can't. First of all, the men took all the power, first of all, and then secondly, all the credit for the revolution. So, so what we find is that a, a lot of work has been done on women's role as combatants you know, we saw that in the commemoration of 1916. Women were critically important in terms of the rising, and we have seen that, uh, what I called a moment ago, recovery work. But the separate question, you know, there was a war, so, so what happened to women has perhaps been part of that, uh, what I call collective amnesia. And there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, as I said, the we, you know, we saw that the new state was a, a patriarchal state. Uh, there was a, a series of pieces of legislation to restrict women's rights in a number of arenas. And part of that would have been not to give attention to um, things like sexual assault, um, you know, attacks on women uh, that were gendered. Uh, we might say. So, so the collective amnesia, I suppose, becomes tied up with the way in which the state is established and progressed. And as I said, women were marginalised. So it's not surprising then that women's experience of the previous decades very quickly, if you like, is pushed to the side. In the broader level, of course, you might say there was collective amnesia more generally. This was a very bitter 
and divisive civil war in particular, which has cast a long shadow over the foundation of the state. And there wasn't a, a sort of any kind of truth and reconciliation process where perhaps it might have come out, these you know, um, incidences of violence that I'm interested in, in relation to women, might have sort of come to the fore. So there was no, if you like, process discussion um, at that level. And also denial, not to put a finer point on it, the idea that, you know, we use the term brother against brother around the Civil War, that idea that there could be any kind of notion of brother against sister, that, 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 that women were, were targeted sometimes. You know, they, they're one of the practices I look at in great detail and which other scholars have looked at as well, starting with Louise Ryan nearly 20 years ago, was the widespread practice of forced haircutting, for instance, which um, isn't just getting your hair cut, it's, you know, it's coercion, it's force, it's, it's, there is no consent for it, and it, it singles out and marks women's uh, sexuality as well. So, so all of these issues were forgotten. They weren't written into the, what we might call the official histories of the revolution. And part of that, as I said, was a denial that it happened. And of course it did. But secondly, a, a marginalization of women's experience and you know, a construction of war as, as about men fighting men. Yeah. So the, the women's story was left out. Yeah. And just to return to that um, about the force cutting of her, this is a form of, is this the correct term, sexual policing of, of, of women? Sure. And very famously, it was brought into, you know, probably the public consciousness with Ken Loach's Wind the Checks of Barley. That's right, yeah. You know, but yeah. it's, and that, that is, you know, the, the British Crown Forces doing that, but it, it wasn't just them. And another thing that you've spoken about is that it wasn't merely the haircut. There was other forms of assault that were attached to that. Initially, you know, analysis of forced haircutting began, there was a tendency to just look at it as, as some, something that was perpetrated separately. But I, I prefer, I suppose, to, to look at it as one form of violence that is broadly targeted at women. You know, clearly in, in some conflicts, different times across the world, men have had their hair cut as well. But broadly, it's, it's aimed at women. And we've seen this in the Spanish Civil War, which wasn't that long after the Irish Revolution, widespread uh, forced hair cutting with other kinds of punishment, you might say, uh, involved. Uh, it, for instance, there's interesting differences. So you can see in, in Ireland, uh, the, these uh, attacks were often at night. Um, women were sort of dragged out of their domestic context. If you look at, let's say, what happened after the Second World War in France, etc., you know, where women accused of sleeping with the enemy, the so-called Nazi collaborators, tended to be paraded through the streets and sort of having a very public spect spectacle with mobs, etc. So there is, I suppose, cultural difference. Uh, so in Ireland, I think, um, yes, it was, it was a form of, I suppose, sexual policing in that it was a way of uh, controlling women's behaviour. If, if women were seen to be too close or fraternising uh, with men on the other side, uh, with the British forces, they were, they were punished and humiliated in this way. So that's what we call sexual policing. It was about 
gender and sexuality, if you like. Um, in, in other instances, you mentioned the wind that shakes the barley. That's a very violent scene of the back and hands, um, forced hair cutting, but also, you know, the implements that were used, sort of scissors or a rusty blade or whatever, you know, they, they could cause cuts and injuries. I've read a lot of witness statements where the woman was also beaten up. Um, one example would be uh, um, Molly Alloway from Yall, who was in Common Amman. You know, so, so there's a way of also, on the other side, punishing the Republican women. And the way I would frame it is that it, it wasn't just an attack on an individual woman, which obviously it was, but it, it, was, it was intended to put fear in all women that if you step out of line, you know, if you're a Republican activist, if you're too close to the other side, if you're, um, you know, with the soldiers, you know, this could happen to you. So it's, it's aimed at the community and, and, the, and the collectivity, so to speak. And again, this is why I would call it a weapon of war, because it isn't at the individual level, it's actually aimed at the community. And also it occurs in wars everywhere. So Ireland is no different, or was no different in that sense. And the collective amnesia I talked about a minute ago tended to suggest that Ireland was perhaps an exception. Um, so, so, so the haircutting was everywhere, but, but, but combined with other forms of violence, yeah. There's a paper that you've written on this, and it's uh, about a, a further uh, understanding of, of violence against women in this period. Um, we've mentioned that there was very little incentive for women to seek redress about this sure. later on. And I'm sure that, you know, it, it causes problems for the researcher, you know, who's trying to research it. But I would like to just talk about what a woman, you know, in the aftermath of this, who would think about, you know, publicly addressing this or seeking redress in some way, what would put her off doing that? you know, in terms of what she would face in society and, you know, among her neighbours? Sure. So, so it depends, I suppose, on, on what happened to her as well. And it's very, when we talk about then, if we talk about sexual crime, for instance, which again is, includes um, what, what today, what we call sexual harassment, things like searching, you know, um, and, and, and that kind of harassment of women, and then at the other end of the scale, actual rape, including gang rape. We have some evidence of these attacks on women. Now, they're no, obviously nothing of the scale of what we call rape units in very large scale conflicts. So you would see very recent examples of that in places like Rwanda, Bosnia, uh, but also in earlier conflicts as well. Uh, but we do have, having said that, cases of this in Ireland. So it's important to get a balance, I think, between acknowledging that this was an aspect of the war, but on the other hand, putting it in context. And also, I would feel very strongly as well, you know, having evidence. And, and that's very challenging because we know even in today's society, rape in particular is vastly under reported and this is sort of 40 years after second wave feminism with a rape crisis movement you know advances in um you know how you actually prosecute for these crimes etc and we still today have very low levels of a reporting and b prosecution so you can imagine a hundred years ago almost a hundred years ago it was even more difficult 
So having said that, some women and their families and communities did take action. And I, I'm very interested in those cases because they can tell us a lot about, first of all, the, the, the nature of violence against women. We can learn a lot about that. And secondly, we learn a lot about the way in which this is dealt with and responded to in a period of conflict and afterwards. So, so, so what is very interesting is that, and other scholars again have, have looked at this or began to look at it, is how, first of all, when women report um, cases, is how difficult it was to go through the courts. And the reason for that was the assumption of the time was that a woman was culpable in her attack, to put it bluntly, unless she could prove otherwise. And so all those assumptions, we use the term today, women were asking for it, you know, we, and, and slut shaming. And, and again, I'm not trying to project today's language onto the past, but you can see very similar kinds of things occurring that the woman had somehow, you know, I've seen bits and pieces referred to in the, in the later, in the 1920s, 1930s, there was a report on sexual assault in that period uh, called the Carrigan Report, which was shelved. Ultimately, the, the government of the time didn't like what was in it. It showed an increase in you know, sexual abuse of children. But there was a, a phrase re, re, around that time that the increase was due to those women who were attracted to the British forces and sure, what do they expect kind of thing. So, so the cultural context, the attitudes to women and the, the sexuality dimension, which I talked about a minute ago, that women were to be controlled rather than to have agency, it was very powerful. Um, so, so, so that would have prevented women from reporting. But when, when women did, often it was because um, for compensation, for instance, and what you see cropping up in relation to compensation and also pension applications are the very severe attacks yeah. because you can't, they, they weren't hidden. They were so transgressive, yeah. I suppose. And I mentioned gang rape earlier. Others have written uh, about some of these cases. They're very well known because they were so, they, if you like, seeped into the community's yeah. awareness, consciousness, we now know that the state knew about some of these attacks at the time, again. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you. There's one that you've tackled in this History Ireland article that you've, sure. the current issue, uh, about uh, Maggie O'Doherty. I'm very careful to talk about cases that, where the anonymity of the woman has been waived publicly, rather than unearthing cases that, that, that aren't documented. I think that's very important. So where the family has waived the anonymity, that means in, in a sense that they wanted the story to be yeah. public. So just to say that first of all. So Catherine Doherty uh, applied for a pension in the 1930s, the early 1930s, on the basis of an attack on her daughter, Margaret, known as Maggie, in, on the 27th of May, 19. Uh, 23 in County Mayo and in effect what happened Maggie was you know it's documented in her application in the pension application that that Maggie was dragged from her bed and raped by three members of the Free, Stra Free State Stroke National Army uh, at the time and so this was documented by the family in detail there was medical evidence included and again, 
coming from the perspective of researching sexual violence it might be slightly different than maybe a mainstream historian in that one of the pieces of evidence we would look at is medical evidence you know to, to get an idea of the extent you know of an attack on a woman and so there's a, there are the, the doctors who looked after uh, Maggie include you know gave statements the family were supported by the parish priest you know, the local headmaster um, so this it's very clear from this file that first of all this was a, a case of transgressive violence against a woman and secondly that the family were seeking a, a form of compensation in 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 the in the guise of a pension for this attack her the mother of this woman it's a very sad case because Maggie died in 1928 so she died you know not not many years after the attack and she died in a psychiatric institution and you know there may be a lot of focus on the physical injuries you know this, these are very violent attacks so there's there are physical injuries but the psychological injuries are likewise immense and I've seen this in relation to violence against women time and time again often you know um, institutionalization followed so so it's a very sad case but I think it's a very important one in that the family have inscribed on the state archive this uh, attack and it's a very important source I think mm. and there, there was an, an inquiry after it but what what happened with that inquiry so that's a, an interesting question because at the moment partly as a consequence of my work and the work of some others as well who are there's a growing interest in these issues um, the, the there, there are some discussions about opening up files inquiries court marshals in into this area and I'm very hopeful I think that these files will be opened quite soon and this is an issue for the civil war more generally as we know as you know from your uh, your wonderful programs um, that there were many atrocities yeah. you know violence this I'm just w looking at one aspect of the violence that occurred this really was a very vicious yeah. conflict it, it may not as I said earlier have been on the scale of the Finnish civil war or the Spanish civil war ha having said that the memory yeah. of what happened is very strong and impacts profoundly on this society and that has been missed yeah. I think and, and would you say you know the fact that a lot of these elements were buried for so long yes. that's why the memory is so you know so strong it's not hasn't been addressed like you say in a truth and reconciliation you know process that you know the the lack of one but in relation to this inquiry into the, the sort of the free state uh, soldiers that perpetrated they were named though weren't they in in that and yes. but they're um you know the files have been closed on that they were and and that's that makes it very challenging mm -hmm. there are very serious ethical considerations and that's why i really only focus on cases where there has been an investigation so it's very important not to engage in hearsay or stories um, so, so, but having said that, perhaps one of the tough decisions about research is that the burden of the past, uh, the burden of, of the violent past, cannot be on the shoulders of victims alone. And the way we 
narrated the past, I think. You know, it can't be a, a, a re-victimisation. So, so it's important to have some kind of balance, if that's the correct term. I'm not sure if you ca can have balance where you have such violence. But I think in discussing these issues and talking about them, you know, we, we create a more open analysis and, it, you know, there might be a view that it's better to leave these issues, not to, but then on the other hand, they, they, are, they are on the public record. They're, the pension application I referred to is online, it's in the public domain. So there are, there are questions being asked and there are answers needed. Uh, but I do think there's a way of doing this, which is, as I said, respectful and respecting female victims of the conflict is an important piece, an element in this. Otherwise, it just becomes a narrative of male militarism. Yeah. And, and that's a very partial view of, of the, the, that period of revolution. This was perpetrated for, you know, by all sides. Absolutely. You know? And there's Absolutely. one piece, I'm just going to look at it here. Sorry, there's one piece um, T.K. Wilson looks at yeah. uh, that you've referred to, and it re relates to what was becoming Northern Ireland at the, t at the time. Sure, yeah. You know, it's, so it, it, it is right across the island at this. Absolutely. And, and you know, they're in effect different conflicts. I mean, the phrase, again, some historians might dispute this phrase, but the phrase, the war on women, mm. in a sense, is used in the literature that looks at, you know, the relationship between war and gender. The, the other case on the border, of course, was um, the the attack on Mary McGuile and Mary McKnight in Drama Tea. Again, the gang rape of Una McGuile, seven months pregnant, publican, uh, and uh, a servant woman who was living there with them. Horrendous attacks, very well documented by Robert Lynch. The, the idea that that was implicated in a subsequent massacre, to use that term, that, that is used in the article, it, is very interesting indeed, isn't it? It suggests, again, that sexual crime is part of the whole politics of reprisal, which is a big part of the nature of the conflict yeah. in Ireland, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's, there's one other um, really important case that you look at in North Tipperary. Yes. And uh, involving anti-treaty um, Yes, IRA. sure. We just mentioned that as well. Eileen Biggs made on the foot of, again, a very transgressive, attack, um, gang rape, she was left for dead, basically. It was a horrendous attack near, near Nina, County Tipperary. In a 1926 compensation claim, Eileen Biggs was awarded, I think, £6,000 at the time, which was a very large award. Again, very similar to Margaret Doherty, who I talked about earlier. Eileen died in 1950 in St. Pat's, in St. Patrick's Hospital, which again is a psychiatric um, institution. And that's different to the other case because it was an anti-treaty group. It was in June 1922. So it became embroiled in, if you like, the start of the Civil War. It went to, there was a, a court case in Nina, and the reported leader of that group, Martin Hogan, um, two of his brothers and cousins, the Graces, were involved in that. They appeared before the court, but Martin Hogan fled to Dublin. 
um, so he didn't actually appear. Um, he was killed a year later in Dublin, uh, reportedly by uh, tortured and killed. Um, it's not clear whether that happened because of his reported involvement in this horrendous attack. Um, but he certainly he was targeted by the Oriel House uh, group. That's what the historians, the Civil War historians suggest. This was an attack on a Protestant woman. And again, these attacks don't respect, as I said, sides or religion. And, um, you know, Catholic and Protestant women. And there are implications for how people are remembered because yeah. there is a memorial to there Hogan is. in that general area. There is, you know, yeah. That, that raises a lot of uncomfortable questions for local communities and things like that. It does, yeah, and, and for the way we commemorate, the way we remember. And, you know, so there are two monuments to Martin Hogan, who, as I said, is widely reported to have uh, led this attack on, on Eileen Biggs. And one is in Dublin, on Grace Park Road, where uh, he was um, killed. And then secondly, just off Bamba Square in Nina. And they raise very provocative questions, yeah, that this idea of uh, heroic mm -hmm. remembrance, you know, we remember our heroes, our, you know, uh, and then on the other hand, we quietly forget, you know, the, 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 the female victims. And I suppose it's, it's quite a provocative thing to say that, particularly at a time of commemoration. But I think if you if you can't ask critical questions at a time of commemoration, there's something wrong, and it's a way of, I suppose, reminding ourselves that the way we remember is very important. Um, Guy Biner, the scholar, has has written quite a lot on the need to forget, and how we forget. But like the flip side of that is then how we remember, and some people might say those kinds of monuments take them down whereas you know I'm not advocating what we might call decommemoration I think they're part of the narrative yeah. so what we have to do is speak critically yeah. to those commemorations and perhaps even engage you know there are people who will who will absolutely defend what they see as war heroes to the hilt regardless of what they have done and we know about this yeah. in the context of Northern Ireland and all, all, all wars, you know, that that will be the defending the honour um, from the military perspective will yeah. absolutely. But, but on the other side, then, if we can use these discussions, debates, these issues I'm talking about to engage critically, such as what happened to the women. I think that's a very powerful thing, and I feel if you if you can't address these issues in the past, how can you address them in the present? You have an article in History Ireland that's here on on the table, the current issue, and you address what you've been talking about here today. Um, I think people are aware they can get it in, in most news agents and things like that. There, but after this, are you hoping to you know expand upon this project, and you know what what is the end goal? For some of these events have been buried in within the context of family memory for almost a hundred years but that doesn't suggest that there haven't been questions 
about it. So that's that's one area in which I'm working on at the minute and how to proceed with that is a big question. But um, yeah, so that's one issue. The, the, the second is I received Irish Research Council funding two years ago to hold a conference on this issue and, and a number of related questions on women and revolution. And the idea of that was to bring other scholars together with me, so to speak, to 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 do a very kind of up-to-date analysis of the relationship between gender and the revolution. And then secondly, I hope to publish a book on this ultimately and to, to keep unearthing these stories as many as we can and to keep on the other hand doing what we might call the political work as well around ensuring that the way we look at gender-based violence is changed <laughs> if you want to um, put it that way that, that we, we look on these questions with a more realistic eye that when we're looking at the past and we're looking at conflict that we're not excluding those important questions yeah. as an element of that. Linda, I really like to thank you for coming in. This is a very important area of work and very challenging. It's very challenging to listen to it as well. Yeah. You and know, to talk about it, yeah, actually. It, yeah. it, 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 it is, there's no denying that it's, it's difficult work. Yeah. Thank yeah. you very much for coming in.